Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. Uh, I'm Jeremy, one of the leaders here, and uh, thanks for joining us. We've had a great Christmas morning. Uh, our kids, as you maybe heard before, got spy gadgets for Christmas. And the first question that Zebby asked me was, Dad, does this mean now that I can climb walls? And the, and the child in me wanted to say yes, but then the father in me imagined them having a catastrophic fall at some point in the day, and so I kind of had to ease him down from, from that little moment. But, um, but the, uh, it is, it's a, kids, I mean, they, their imagination is sparked. They love Christmas, and it's an amazing thing. And really, it is a time where we have much to be thankful for. It's a time where we get a break from work. It's a time where we get time with friends and family. There is a lot to be thankful for, especially in our neck of the woods here in Balmain. But I think one of the questions that Christmas probably brings up for us is this. The rest of the year round, why aren't we more thankful? Or even you could, you could flip the question the other way. Why is it that with so much to be thankful for, we're often so prone to complain? I don't know if your street has one. But uh, our street has a resident uh, passive-aggressive note lever. And uh, we've only been in the street for about six months, but, um, but we, we soon noticed that, that there were notes aplenty in the street. And, uh, and so we've had a running sort of neighbourhood guess-who competition going on where we're trying to work out who the passive-aggressive note lever is. And suspect number one was, um, was a lady down the street, just because there were a few notes left in the vicinity of her house, and she had that kind of, can I speak to the manager sort of look. And so I thought... We were thinking that was number one until about two days ago. And two days ago, I saw the the standard kind of note that gets left in our street is over one particular parking vice, and it's where people don't park right up against the line of the the driveway because then it means you can't fit as many cars in kind of a, a set strip of sort of, you know, sidewalk. And so the notes left will be like, you know, can you make sure you park right against the curb so we can fit as many cars in as possible? But this time, there was a note left in just ripped off cardboard, and it was just some, it was a heavy, heavy, angry note, just telling someone how angry they were that they had, you know, basically left out a park and that this person wouldn't be able to find a park. And as I read it, I just remember thinking, whoa, just calm down. It's just a parking space. What is it that would make someone so mad to, to almost feel like, the, like a stranger is a complete enemy, like they've literally done this by design to make your day worse? It's a strange thing. But it kind of reminded me, of, it's been on my mind a little bit lately, because I had a conversation with some, some friends recently who've moved over to Sydney from Perth. And one of the things that really struck them about Sydney, and I can't testify to this because I've lived in Sydney all my life, one of the things that they said really struck them, because they lived here, moved away for seven years and came back, was they noticed how irritable the city is. How irritable and angry, how much everyone beeps one another, how often unkind or unfriendly it can be. And I, I kind of find that a bit sad and striking. I think probably what's even worse was that they mentioned that the longer you spend in the city, you don't actually just observe the problem, you become part of it. You become one of the people who bangs on your steering wheel and beeps people at traffic lights. And even as I reflected on it, I thought, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I am in traffic. It's my own shame. Why are we like this? I mean, we know it's so unpleasant. We don't want to be. We see it around us and we think that is not a picture of humanity that we like. And yet, we're often a part of it. Well, one, uh, one journalist, John Sylvester, wrote in the, the Age recently an article on this very thing, on the fact that he observed just traffic anger and road rage, but also just the same kind of anger in himself. And he said, why are we so angry 
It's hashtag me first. He said, here's a thought. There is a massive social movement that has millions of latent members. It's me first. Our problems stem from a sense of selfishness and undeserved entitlement that is white-anting the pillars of civility. I think he's right. And maybe it even goes deeper, potentially. Uh, the, the author, David Foster Wallace, gave a pretty now famous address, uh, a commencement speech at Kenyon College. And he said this, and it'll come up on the screen for you, is that everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realist, most vivid, and most important person in existence. We rarely talk about this kind of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us deep down. It's our default setting, hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There is no experience you've had that you are not at the absolute center of. I then believe that my immediate needs, wants, and desires should order the priorities of the universe around me. And I think this, in many ways, is right. We almost have this default setting that leads me to believe that I am the center of the universe and everyone else's priorities around me should be shaped by my immediate needs and desires. People should speed through at the lights because I need to get somewhere on time. People should hurry on the sidewalk or not walk three abreast because I need to get through. It's unfortunate, but it's the thing that makes us irritable and unthankful and ungrateful. It's the main cause of office place work or of office place gossip or of self-justifying rants. The belief that at the end I am at the center of all things. And I think it stems from our lack of belief in the Christmas story. Hear me out on this. There is one thing that this part of the Christmas story that we are looking at this morning teaches us, and it's our smallness, our absolute smallness. But not the crushing smallness of realizing that you're just a random accumulation of atoms floating in an unsympathetic universe, but wonderful smallness, the good smallness, the kind of smallness you feel at the foot of a waterfall as you see kilotons of water rushing over the edge. The kind of wonderful smallness that you feel when you see the open night sky in the countryside when there aren't the city lights kind of uh, blocking out all the stars. Wonderful smallness comes from realizing our insignificance without a loss of hope. And this is what this story picks up on. And we're going to pick it up in sentence 39 uh, where two cousins are talking, Elizabeth and Mary. It will come up on the screen for you. Luke 1, 39 to 45, where we read this. It says, In those days... Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold... When the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a, a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Mary here meets her cousin Elizabeth. She comes into the house and as she greets her, we're told that the baby leaps for joy in a way that is different to the way that a baby normally moves in the womb. And Elizabeth is moved by the Holy Spirit to exclaim, Mary, you are blessed among women. She says, blessed is the fruit of your womb. She exclaims that Jesus, who will be born of Mary, is not going to be just any regular child, that this is in fact God walking among humanity. 
She says, blessed are you that you'll be the mother of our Lord, the one who has come to rescue Israel. She says, blessed are you who believe that there would be a fulfillment of the promise. This is a reference to something that happened earlier in the chapter when Mary is promised that she will have a miraculous baby, that she will have a virgin birth. Now you might be thinking, well, you can stop right there. This is where the ridiculous of the Christmas story kicks in. Ricky Gervais, a a comedian, a pretty prominent one, uh, chose this particular part of the story for a special mockery. He described it as, as, the worst, <laughs> as the worst kind of excuse that a teenager has come up with to explain a baby out of wedlock. And that's, a, that's an interesting sort of take on it. Uh, but it is, right from the beginning of the story, it's a jarring kind of moment. But interestingly, the virgin birth has a few interesting facts around it. The, in the Bible, it's only mentioned in two out of the four gospel accounts, and it's not really mentioned for the rest of the New Testament. Now, that's strange. There's really only one verse in the Old Testament, the older section of the Bible before Jesus, that even kind of uh, foreshadows a virgin birth. There's no evidence that any Jewish people who were waiting for this Messiah that Jesus claimed to be were waiting for some kind of miraculous virgin birth. In fact, for many of them, a virgin birth was kind of considered a more pagan tradition and would be more likely to cause them uh, to be, to be sceptical uh, of this account. And so it's strange as to why it is that Luke, in this account of Jesus' birth, life, ministry, death and resurrection, chose to include it. See, if this was a false account, if it was something that you were making up, this is the very kind of thing that you wouldn't put in. With the Jewish audience that you're trying to reach and convince of this false story, it's more likely to make them sceptical. And it's not going to win you any friends with those who are unconvinced of the Jewish tradition either. So there's really no point to put it in there. The New Testament writers don't make it a big thing in terms of Jesus' credibility for his ministry or claim to be a Messiah. Really, the only reason to have put it in there is if they were just considered it a part of the account that they needed to tell. And so it's interesting that this is there and at the beginning of the story. And this is what Elizabeth exclaims. She says, Blessed are you who has believed this account. And then we see Mary's incredible response to this news. Look at what she says in Luke chapter 1, 46 to 55. We read this in tiny, tiny writing. (laughs) You can just take my word for it that this is what it says. And, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, but not the writing. My soul magnifies the Lord... And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy and as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The gospel, the message about Jesus, brings people low. She says, he has looked on my humble estate. She she says, I magnify the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. The central message of Christmas is that God is a Savior. The we as humanity have made a mess of things, which isn't hard to make a case for. But the the story of the gospel, the message of Christmas, is that God has intervened in this mess. That he sent Jesus to deal with it. That his creation has sinned against him, has walked away from him, has been separated from him, 
and brought death into the world, and Jesus came to die in our place to create a solution for us. And this is a very humbling message, isn't it? It's humbling to say, I need a savior. It's humbling to say, I need to be saved. See, some gifts humble us, don't they? I'm not sure what kind of presents you're going to get today, but if you were to go to wherever it is that you're heading from here and to open some presents, and if you were to get a book from a friend or relative, and as as you peel back the paper, you see that the title of the book is How to Win Friends and Influence People. You would at once be thankful for an undeserved gift, but also wondering, is there, a, is there a subtle message that someone's trying to get across here? If someone gave you a book on dieting or exercise or any of those things, if you say, okay, that's, uh, that's, thank you for the gift, but what is it that you're trying to say here? Some gifts are kind of a gift and at once a little bit humbling. And the message of Christmas is a humbling gift. The, the message that we need to be saved, that we need a saviour, is a humbling one. But here, Mary receives it with joy. She says, God has looked upon my humble, humble estate. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. It is wonderful smallness that she feels knowing the news of the gospel. See, I think there is, there is, that this is the message that in many ways we're missing culturally. A message that says that we do need help, but that there is help available. A message that we do need help, and yet there is hope. I'm reading a book at the moment called The Road to Character which is by a journalist and a political pundit called David Brooks. Uh, not a believer by any stretch, um, but he, the, the reason I started reading this book was I was listening to a, a podcast by a guy called Sam Harris, who's a very public atheist thinker, and uh, he was interviewing him about his book because he found it pretty compelling. And one of the things they were discussing in it is that, that it's been a bit of a shame that culturally we've lost the word sin. And you might think, well, that's a, that's a strange kind of topic to enter into, but just track with this for a moment. He was saying one of the things that was so helpful about that narrative or that understanding of humanity was that, uh, that we believed that in order to grow, we needed to focus on our weaknesses in order to grow strong in character. And they talked on and on about you know, the pluses and minuses of this kind of thing. But in, in many ways, that it's a shame that it's something that we've left behind as a culture. It seems that as humankind, we don't flourish when we consider ourselves perfect and without need of help. It seems that we don't flourish either as individuals or a society when we are the biggest thing in our lives, when there is nothing to humble us, when there is nothing to make us feel wonderfully small. And yet this is the message of Christmas. And this is what Mary rejoices in. She says, to praise God, I magnify my Lord, for he has considered my humble estate. The gift of a saviour is a gift that both humbles and raises you up at the same time. And that's why she says this. She says, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. The message of Christmas is humbling. That we sinned and needed help. That Jesus came and died in our place that we might have new relationship with God forever, an undeserved gift, a humbling gift, and one that is a joyful thing because it teaches us to be wonderfully small. I'm going to share with you to finish up one story uh, that uh, a journalist called G.K. Chesterton wrote to illustrate this very point. So track with me for a bit. There's a bit of old language in there. 
But uh, I think you'll get the gist of the story as we carry along. It starts this way. It's only very short. It says, Once upon a time, there were two little boys who lived chiefly in the front garden because their villa was a model one. The front garden was about the same size as a dinner table. So it's obviously in the inner west. And he said, it consisted of four strips of gravel, a square of turf, and some mysterious pieces of cork standing up in the middle, and one flower bed with a row of red daisies. One morning, while they were at play in these romantic grounds, a passing individual, probably the milkman, leaned over the railing and engaged them in philosophical conversation, as milkmen are wont to do. The boys, whom we will call Paul and Peter, were at least sharply interested in his remarks. For the milkman, who was, I need say, a wizard, of course, did his duty in that state by offering them, in the regulation manner, anything they they chose to ask for. And Paul closed with the offer with a business-like abruptness, explaining that he had long wished to be a giant, that he might stride across continents and oceans and visit Niagara or the Himalayas in an afternoon stroll. The milkman, producing a wand from his breast pocket, waved it in a hurry and perfunctory manner. And in an instant, the model villa with its garden was like a tiny doll's house at Paul's colossal feet. He went striding away with his head above the clouds to visit Niagara and the Himalayas. But when he came to the Himalayas, he found that they were quite small and silly looking, like the little cork rockery in the garden. And when he found Niagara, it was no bigger than the tap turned on in the bathroom. He wandered round the world for several minutes, trying to find something really large and finding everything small, till in sheer boredom he lay down on four or five prairies and fell asleep. Unfortunately, his head was just outside the hut of an intellectual backwoodsman, just stay tuned for this bit, who came out of it at that moment with an axe in one hand and a book of neo-Catholic philosophy in the other. The man looked at the book, and then the giant, and then the book again, and in the book it said, it can be maintained that the evil of pride consists in being out of proportion to the universe. So the backwoodsman put down his book, took his axe, and working eight hours a day for about a week, cut off the giant's head, and that was the end of him. Keep tracking with me. But Peter, oddly enough, made exactly the opposite request. He said he had long wished to be a pygmy about half an inch high, and of course he immediately became one. When the transformation was over, he found himself in the midst of an immense plain, covered with tall green jungle, and above which, at intervals, rose strange trees, each with a head like the sun in symbolic pictures, with giant rays of silver and a huge heart of gold. Toward the middle of his prairie stood up a mountain of such romantic and impossible shape, yet of such stony height and dominance that it looked as if some incident at the end of the world. And far away on the faint horizon he could see the line of another forest, taller and yet more mystical of a terrible crimson colour, like a forest on fire forever. He set out on his adventures across that coloured plain and has not come to the end of it yet. What is the point of this odd story? The point is, when we're the biggest thing in reality, everything else becomes small and boring and meaningless. When we become small, we see everything around us and marvel at it. We need something to make us feel small. As a culture, in many ways, we have left behind the story of the gospel, a story that will make us feel wonderfully small without losing hope. 
This is the exact impact that has on Mary as she considers the grandness of God's grace and kindness in the gospel. Of sending Jesus to die for our sin, it transforms her. She's overwhelmed by it. This is the goodness of the Christian message, that there is a good and overwhelming God who is full of grace. And it enlivens the world around us that we might be full of gratitude and humility and thankfulness. It is a very humbling and very wonderful message. I'm going to pray and praise God for it now. Father God, we praise you for the message of Christmas. That we in our sin needed saving. That you in your grace sent Jesus. And we pray that we might be humbled by this. That today and for the rest of this Christmas season and indeed our lives that we would remember your grace and it would humble us and lead us to thankfulness. Father, we pray that you would do this, that you might be glorified in your people and that at this time of year you might be glorified in the remembrance of the sending of Jesus in likeness of sinful flesh to die on our behalf and to rise again to new life. Father, we pray all this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.